Ephesians 3, starting in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Amen. Thank you, John, for reading the scripture today. Morning, everybody. How we doing? Good. Good to be with you. You guys ever, um, uh, every once in a while, it seems like this happened. Something happened that just kind of changes everything, changes the course of your life. Um, husbands in here, remember, this is Valentine's Day coming up this week. So you should say yes. You should say something uh, changed your life. Um, I was reading recently uh, about something like that um, in uh, April 25th, 1953, uh, two gentlemen named James Watson and Francis Crick published a one-page report that would soon change the world. In it, they described the structure of a double helix um, of deoxyribonucleic acid, which some of you know is DNA, right? No one had been able to um, describe what it looked like and what it was shaped like, but this became like a milestone in the scientific, in the history of science, and it's given rise to modern molecular biology. A lot of the jobs that are here in San Diego and the biotech industry would not be here if it weren't for this discovery. All kinds of things. It's changed our world. You can get your, your genome mapped now in a few days. You can just go, go online and, and send in the sample. A few days you get to find out everything about your genome. There are people who served uh, decades for crimes they didn't commit, but then now they're free because of what? DNA evidence that, um, that cleared their name. Um, I remember, I, some of you guys know I studied biology in college. And I had this class called Developmental Biology, and you were kind of studying how uh, humans and, and animals and 
plants even went from DNA to becoming, you know, in the 3D world. And for me, it was just amazing. It was like, I was thinking back on it, it's like, it's kind of like nature's 3D printer. You know, you just stick in the genetic code and then out pops, uh, you know, a puppy or, <laughs> or, or a pig or, or a person, you know, and it's in the DNA code. And how does it become in this 3D world that just amazed me? Um, what I'm getting at is that in many ways, our life is, has been changed because of the discovery of this truth. Now, here's the thing. DNA existed that whole time before we ever knew about it. But now that we've understood it a little bit more, the way we understand what life is, how life works, how, um, how things are has been changed forever. Now, in the passage today that John read uh, in Ephesians 3, the apostle Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and in the surrounding areas in the first century um, AD. He is uh, in prison as he's writing this, and he's writing about something like that. And the word he uses for it is mystery. I don't know if you heard that when John was reading, but it's, that word is in there four times. There's a mystery. The Greek word is mysterion, which you could kind of tell. Okay, that's where we get mystery from. But when we say mystery, we mean like secret or something that we don't know, right? But the way it's used in the New Testament is it's something that uh, up until now we haven't known. It's, it's been hidden from human knowledge or understanding, but now it's been disclosed. It's been revealed to us by God in Jesus Christ. And so he uses the word four times in this passage, and it's not... The mystery that he's talking about is not some special secret knowledge. It's not, you know, a secret society, Freemasons in a, you know, in a building, in a room with no windows. You know, the, the secret mystery. No, he, he actually tells us what the mystery is. You don't even have to guess, right? So verse 6, he says this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Here's the mystery that he's pointing to and talking about. He says, through the gospel, there is a union that is now possible. And he's been unpacking this over the last few weeks as we've been looking in the first two chapters. There's a union that is possible because of what Jesus did by uh, coming to earth. God became flesh and he lived perfectly and showed us what it's like to, to truly be human and to, and to love God well and perfectly. And yet he died for our sins and, and he was buried and he that's not the end. He rose again on the third day, and then he ascended to heaven, and then he's coming back. That's what we call this gospel story. But the mystery is this, that there's a union possible now because of what Jesus did. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There's a union that is now possible between us and God. We have the ability to be reconciled with God, but there's also a union that is now possible between us and each other. And that's what we talked about last week, when, and that's what Paul mentions here, that Jews and Gentiles, which were two hostile groups, 
are now together in the church. They're sharers together in the covenant. They share this new life together. And so it's mysterious because God has planned this. It's been in his heart. And it's a, it's a truth that, that shows us what his plan has been. But now he brings us new life in Christ and he gives us new community in Christ. And Paul says, I was given this mystery. And what, what I want to look at today as we're just kind of looking through this scripture, if you need a Bible, we have some here. You might want to keep your, your Bible app open. Um, just like DNA is a, is a groundbreaking discovery, but it was always there. And now we understand it, and now it's changed our lives. Even more so, this mystery that Paul is talking about changes everything. It changes everything about your life. There's all sorts of things in your life that are totally different because of this gospel. And the passage, it, it just highlights a few. We could just list about two million. But the, I, I, I want to list just a few that the passage talks about because it gives us a case study of a life that's been changed by the gospel. And that's the Apostle Paul as he's writing. And, and how we're changed as we receive the gospel. And I want to focus on it. it changes the way that you see yourself. Changes the way you see the church. And it changes the way you see your suffering. Yourself, the church, and your suffering. All right? First, yourself. Some of you guys, I, I heard some of you noticing when uh, John read this in verse 8, when Paul says this, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. You guys hear what he started off with, how he sees himself? Less than the least of all the Lord's people. If you uh, study that passage, you realize that Paul has actually made up a word <laughs> in, in, in the Greek um, that wasn't really used. And Paul does that sometimes because sometimes when you're trying to describe the gospel, it, there's not words for it yet. <laughs> so you have to make up some words. But he takes the word that, that would be for least and basically makes it leaster. I'm like, I'm leaster. And it's hard to translate, but that's why we have, that's why we have this phrase. Uh, I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people. Theologian John Stott um, uh, says perhaps that he was making a play on words with his own name. So his Roman name, Paulus, uh, was Latin for the word little. And tradition has it that he was a little man. And uh, John Stott says it this way. He may be saying, I am little. I'm little by name. I'm little in stature. And I'm morally and spiritually littler than the littlest of all Christians. And what's interesting to me and to us is that in many ways, Paul would not have been considered less than the least by the people that he's writing to. He, here's the thing you got to know about Paul. He had the right pedigree. He was a good Jewish person. He was also a Roman citizen, which he had all the rights and responsibilities that came with being a Roman citizen. He was educated. He had the right education. He had so much education. It says that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the, one of the primary teachers in the Jewish world of that day. He was his student. 
He was religiously upright. This is all before he met Jesus. He was a Pharisee. He was very righteous. He had religious connections. He had political connections. He had friends in high places who trusted him. And that's just before he was a Christian. Even after he was a Christian, he, he was known around the world. He was the, the church planter missionary that went from place to place. There's one time he showed up in a city. He left. He got kicked out three and a half weeks later, and there was a church there. <laughs> Thessalonica. If you've ever read Thessalonians and Acts, that's what happened. He was there less than a month, and there's a church there. He, he, he would heal people. He, he, he survived poisonous snake bites, <laughs> and, and yet none of this goes to his head. Paul, the world-famous apostle, known all over the world. Think of, think of some of the most famous preachers that you know now. And some of them I know would say this, but some wouldn't say, I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people. And yet Paul says that, and he's not just groveling. He's not just being a hypocrite. He's not just putting on a fake false humility. He means it. And here's why we know he means it. Because when Paul met Jesus, Jesus changed his life. Some of you know where I'm going with this. Paul underwent a drastic change because before, before he believed in Jesus, he wasn't just indifferent. He hated Christians. He blasphemed the name of Jesus. He went from town to town with the authority that his friends in high places gave him to throw Christians in jail to see them be persecuted and beaten and some of them even murdered. And he was happy about it. Persecuting the church, insulting Christ. He went from that to being one of the most influential Christians in history. And so when Paul believed the gospel of Jesus, he was deeply aware of two things. He was deeply aware of how unworthy he was because of his sin and because of what he had done, but he was also deeply aware of Christ's overflowing mercy and grace toward him. That's why Philippians 3 says this, Paul writing says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage or dung that I may gain Christ. Elsewhere, he says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. First Timothy 1, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But the next verse, he says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Here's what I'm getting at. When you believe the gospel, when you receive this truth that we talk about all the time here at this church, in a lot of ways, it is the DNA of our church. It's the DNA of every Christian. When you receive that, when you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just random that he was actually dying in your place for your sins. And when he rose again, it wasn't just a cool miracle. It was to give you promise and hope of a new life, that he's going to make everything right. When you believe that, you can't help but become more humble 
as a person. You come to it with this attitude of, though my sin was great, his grace is greater. I thought I knew what life was all about, but then I met the author of life. And he gave me new life. That's why one of my favorite quotes around here, you probably heard it umpteen times. <laughs> I just say in Arkansas, umpteen. It's not a real number, but... Um, is this, this quote from Timothy Keller, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And when you grasp that, that makes you, it can't help but make you more humble. It's not that you think less of yourself and you grovel and you just think, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm horrible. It's that you think of yourself less because you're overwhelmed with God's love for you. Not only did the gospel make Paul more humble, it made him more confident. His life had an unshakable purpose. You, you see it in that phrase. He says, although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and make it plain to everyone. Paul was a man on a mission. He was a man on fire. When he realized that God's grace was for him, he could not keep it inside. It's like Ezekiel says, it's fire shut up in my bones. It's not going to stay there long. <laughs> that's the point. If you have grasped this gospel like Paul did, that's why he was a trailblazer. That's why he was preaching the good news about Jesus, even when it wasn't good for him, even when it got him in trouble, even when he got shipwrecked or when he got uh, beaten with rocks or when he got imprisoned for years, as he's been in prison for three years as he's writing this letter today, even when he was persecuted, even, even when he got run out of town, nothing could stop him. Because he knew what his purpose was. He knew who saved them and he knew who called them to, to declare the boundless riches of Christ. Boundless. that You can't run to the end of it. There's no out of bounds. <laughs> when you try to describe God's glory, you just keep going. And then you make up words. <laughs> so you run out of words. What God does to you in the gospel. Hear me today, Christian. What God does to you, he wants to do through you. When you receive the gospel, it not only makes you more humble, it gives you confidence. It gives you a mission. God gives you a purpose. You're not aimless in this life. You're not wandering, wandering around hoping that God eventually will show you what your mission is. He's given you a mission. And yeah, it's going to work out in a bunch of different ways for different people, but he's given you a mission. He's given you a purpose. And you know that you're here to share the love that God has shared with you. Amen? Amen. John Stott says this, Once we are sure that the gospel is both truth from God and riches for mankind, nobody will be able to silence us. Here's what this means for us. The gospel changes the way you see yourself. The degree to which pride is still in your heart is the degree to which you need to hear and repent and believe the good news again. Is your life marked by humility? Are there points in this week where you know you had to take the humble road? 
eat humble pie, I guess, but you chose it? <laughs> is your life marked by humility? Is, do, do you find that your identity is in your achievements, in your successes, in, in, the, in the trophies of your life that you say, look at what I did, and that, what, that's what makes me who I am? Are you stuck only thinking about yourself and, and your mission and your plan and your problems and your... What you need today is not the answers to all that. You need the gospel. You need the good news. You need Jesus to remind you of the good news. If you feel aimless in life or if you feel bored as a Christian, if, if, you, if you have lost touch with your purpose, the degree to which you feel that is the, the degree to which you need the gospel. That's, you need to ask the Spirit to, and say, God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Anyone with me? You hear me? Ask the Spirit. Say, God, open my eyes to the boundless riches of Christ. Because I'm, I'm over here acting like I already know it all. I, and, and I hope you hear me. I'm not preaching down to you. This is, this is hitting me, all right? There are needs all around you that God has put you there to be the minister to. And if we're not in touch, if we're thinking we're walking around aimless and we're not in touch with our purpose, we're going to miss it day after day after day after day. And then we're going to say, God, what, what am I here for? What do you have for me? He's already showed us. Amen? There's a hymn by Isaac Watts written in 1707, so over 300 years ago. And uh, some of these verses are, are some of my favorites. I wanted to share it. Even though it's old English, maybe you guys will bear with me. Um, it says this, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Thus might I hide my blushing face while his dear cross appears, dissolve my heart in thankfulness, and melt my eyes to tears. But drops of grief can never repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. You see that when you grasp the gospel, when you grasp what Jesus did for you on that tree, on that mount called Calvary, that not only does it, it's, it squashes the pride in your heart, but it also, it gives you that purpose to say, all I can do is give you my whole life. Here I am, take me, it's all I can do. The, gospely, the gospel utterly changes, not just the way you look at yourself, as we talked about, I'm going to keep moving forward. It, it also changes the way that you look at the church. Continuing right along with that passage. It says this. This mystery. There's that word again. This mystery for which ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom 
and confidence. See that phrase, the manifold wisdom of God. The multifaceted wisdom of God. How many want to know God's wisdom? You find yourself praying that prayer. You know, there's scriptures that say, if you want wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. I've found often I want to know God's wisdom. I want to know God's wisdom for my life. I, I want to know because I know that his understanding is beyond mine. And scripture here in this passage says that he's actually made his manifold wisdom known. And the way that he's done that is through the church. <laughs> through the church? Like, Kenny, did you read that right? Is that the right translation? Um, because I've been to a church. <laughs> I've been part of a church. Uh, I've been part of a church plant. And uh, you've got to have this wrong. You're saying the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church, but it's messy. And it's disorganized. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my job is not that organized, but my job is more organized than my church. Or, or, or maybe you have bad connotations with the church, and, and some of that is deserved. But you know, maybe you just think, oh, it's just people who want your money. Or you know what? Church is just a bunch of hypocrites that get together and feel better about themselves. Or, or maybe you're here. That hit somebody. <laughs> I'm like throwing grenades. Uh, maybe you're here, and you've been hurt by the church. That's real. That happens, and I know it. I've been there. Maybe you're here, and you've been hurt. And, and here, Kenny, you're going to stand up there on a Sunday morning and tell me that God's manifold wisdom is made known through this messy, haphazard group that I've experienced as the church. Here's what Paul is getting at. You can't have the gospel without the church. The church is central to the gospel because the gospel is not just good news for individuals. When Jesus returns, he's not just going to return for individuals. He's going to return for his bride. Jesus is not going to return just for individuals. He's going to return for his body. He's going to return for his church. And this gospel, like we're talking about, has made a new community. Not just a new life in our hearts, but a new community with each other. And so we talked about last week, the power to reconcile groups that have been hostile to each other is found in the gospel and only in the gospel. And so Paul says the manifold wisdom, the, the word there he's using, it, this is the only time it appears in the New Testament. It means something like this, multiply multicolored. And, and words like it were used to describe flowers, crowns, embroidered cloth, and woven carpets. Here's the picture. The church is a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial, just like a beautiful tapestry that's woven together. Its members come from all sorts of backgrounds all over the world. Its diversity and harmony are unique. It's God's new society that he's putting together. And when you look at the church, it's a group of people who are coming together, not because they naturally belong together in the world's eyes. Not because they naturally like each other, but because they all love Jesus. 
And, and you find that Jesus is the one that brings all kinds of people together in, in this church and in the church globally. God's multifaceted wisdom, multiply multicolored wisdom is shown in that. When you see that these people are united and by the world's way of looking at things, they have no reason to be united. But it's Jesus. It's the gospel that's brought them together. That shows God's wisdom. And there's a billion other ways that it shows God's wisdom, but I don't have time to go to a billion other ways uh, right now. <laughs> it shows us God's wisdom in the church, and it also shows us his power. That next phrase says, uh, uh, according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Jesus Christ. What, he's, what the scripture is telling us is that the church is central to God's eternal purpose. The church, from God's point of view, the church is at the center of history. God who created all things, as it said in this passage, is now making his wisdom known to us through this group of people called the church according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished, past tense, in Christ Jesus. He accomplished already? What, what are we getting at here? This, this verse is telling you his eternal purpose has been accomplished in Christ Jesus and is now being worked out that we live in something you guys have heard me say before. We live in an already but not yet reality. That Christ has given us the victory and we live and he's given us a future hope and told us what's going to happen. We've read the back of the book. Anyone? Yeah. Read the back of the book. God has given us a glimpse of this future in which all things are made new and all things are made right. In which all things in heaven and earth are brought un, uh, unto unity under Christ, Ephesians 1.10. And we have, given that, have been given that hope and told that reality, and God is calling us to live like it's true in the present. This passage reminds me a little bit of uh, one of... Uh, one of my favorite movies from the 80s, uh, Back to the Future. Anyone seen that? Please tell me you have. Okay, yeah. Back to the Future. Marty McFly um, go, travels, I think it's in 1985, and he goes back to the 40s or 50s. And um, uh, you guys probably know the story and all that stuff, but there's this scene, I think I have a picture of it. Oh, yeah. There's a scene where um, he gets asked to play for the school dance, and he's trying to, he's back, he's in the, past, and he's trying to make sure that his parents fall in love so that he can exist, or something like that. Anyways, he's, it's time travel. It's weird. It's, you know, just, just go with it. And um, anyways, he, he starts to play, and he's like, he starts off, and he's like, oh, this one's an oldie, and he's like, well, it's an oldie where I come from, right? And then he starts playing uh, Johnny Be Good, right, by, uh, I think it's a Chuck Berry song. And it's rock and roll, and the band's just kind of following him with him, and they've never heard this kind of music before. And, then, and the crowd just goes crazy, and it's like everyone's jamming and rocking. And then the guy calls his cousin, he's like, hey, Chuck, it's your cousin Marvin Berry. So it's like supposed to be Chuck Berry. I found that sound that you want. And he holds up the phone, and he listens. And, and everything's going great. And then, and then Marty gets a little bit too into 
into it, and then he, the, the guitar solo kind of morphs, and he's like doing more of like a 70s or 80s like crazy rock and roll solo, and it's like, you know, and, uh, and then I think there's the next picture. Yep, that one. Uh, he, he's in the middle of this crazy guitar bend, and then he realizes everyone just kind of stopped and looking because it was a little bit too much for them, right? And um, he, he says, I guess you guys aren't ready for that, but your kids are going to love it. And... Um, <laughs> But to me, that's this interesting picture because he lived in the future. He was able to give them a little foretaste of it. And to me, that's a glimpse of what it means to be the church, to be part of the church, to grasp the future hope that we have in Christ, that Christ has promised us. It's not fairy tale, not make believe, not telling you to make you feel better. The future hope that God has said with his own word is going to come to pass and to live like it's true in the present. It's to be a community of grace now, to be a community of forgiveness now, to be a community that's unified in our diversity now, to be a community of justice now, to be a holy community to access the power of God in our lives now and pray for other people, to love one another in ways that don't make sense now, to give people a, a, a glimpse, a taste of, a foretaste of the future to which we're called, the hope that we have. Anyone with me? This is, how, this is what happened in the ancient church, the early church. Uh, 200 years after Christ, there was a, a Christian, a North African Christian named Tertullian, and he wrote a defense of Christianity to all the critics. It's called apology. That's where we get the word apologetics. And one of the things he said that was famous among the critics of that day was this phrase. When they talked about Christians, they said, look how they love one another. That that was an evidence for the truth of Christianity. A few uh, years or um, after that, Roman Emperor Julian said this about Christians. He was an opponent of Christianity. He didn't like it in the Roman Empire, but he said this. He wrote this to one of his pagan high priests. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, which means the Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. You see what he's saying there? The emperor is saying these Silly Christians, <laughs> they're making us look bad because they take care of the poor in our empire better than we do with all our money and all our wealth. They put us to shame. By the, there's no Jewish people that have to beg at all. <laughs> and, and, and these Christians, they don't just look after the people in their group. They look after the other people outside of their group. Rodney Stark, the sociologist, wrote that this is one of the reasons the Christian movement grew so rapidly in the first few centuries was its demonstration of mercy to those in need. He said this, in the midst of squalor and misery and illness and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. Christians supported the poor and cared for the destitute children and elderly and ministered to prisoners. And that was all possible because of these communities called congregations, called churches, that got a glimpse of what God is doing in history because he's in control of history. It's not random and pointless, as, as our culture is saying. God is in control. 
And if we believe that and we start to live like it's true, the world can't even handle it. It breaks the categories. What are these people doing? Why do they love each other like that? Why do they love people who don't love them? The passage paints it like that. History is the theater. The world is the stage. And church members in every land are the actors. God has written the play and he directs and produces it. Here's my question. If this is how God sees the church, if God sees the church as central to the gospel, as central to his eternal purposes, if if God sees the church as the way that he makes his wisdom known in the world, why don't we treat it that way? Why don't we treat it that way? Some of us, some of us pray prayers that God has promised to answer through his people, through the church, while active, actively distancing ourselves from the church. We, we pray, God, I need direction in my life. And God's saying, that wisdom is in the spirit, and the spirit is in the body of people called the church. We pray, God, I need help in my marriage. Again, that help is going to be found in the relationships that you have in the church. God, I'm lonely. The church. (laughs) God, I don't understand you. Take part in my church. There's teaching. There's communion. There's worship. You're going to understand more and more. If God sees his church at the center of his eternal purposes, why do we see it on the fringes of our life? If God is wanting to bless the world through the church, and that's his mission and his number one plan, and there's not a backup plan, and we've been invited into it, why do we get so wrapped up in our lesser missions? Why do we get so wrapped up in in our dream job and our dream home and our dream vacation and our Instagrammable life? Why do we, why? Why is it so easy to dog the church or down the church or diss the church And I know there's hypocrisy, there's bad stuff, and there's real hurt. I'm not lessening any of that. But do we not realize that we're trash-talking Jesus' bride? His bride. What would happen if I went to a wedding and the whole time I just trash-talked the bride? (laughs) I would hope that the groom would punch me. Or, or, or the best man or somebody, please just punch me. <laughs> and how guilty. How, I've been guilty of this. I've been, I'm, hear me. I, I'm not trying to preach down to you. I've been guilty of this. And I know that several of us have been guilty of this, yet Jesus doesn't punch me. There's grace even for me. And I can say, although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me. We can say that with Paul. I know the church isn't perfect. I know the church has problems. Jesus knows that too. (laughs) Jesus died for those problems. And if God hasn't given up on his church, then why, how can I? If God loves his church, how can I not? If God sees the church at the center, so should we. The gospel changes the way we see the church. It's not as just something that we show up to. It's not an event, a weekly event. It's not a time on Sunday morning. It's the people that God has brought together to himself to build into a temple where the Holy Spirit dwells and where people on earth can be blessed through the church. Amen? God... 
changes. In the gospel, God changes the way we see uh, yourself, the church, and your suffering. It's my last point. Paul makes this one last point in the last verse, and it's brief, and so I want to keep it brief. But he says this in verse 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. It's a a striking phrase, especially when you know that there are people that are going to be reading this letter who know Paul because he ministered in Ephesus for, I think, three years. And how many know that when someone that you know is suffering, it can be very discouraging to you because you care for them, right? And so Paul was writing this letter, and he's saying, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. They're your glory. And there's so much we could go at here, but the the thing I want to say is that suffering is part of life. Suffering is part of life. It's pleasant for no one, and no one can escape it. Whether it's sickness or death or whether it's persecution, whether it's suffering for your faith in Jesus and being ridiculed at, at work or at school or or being uh, punished for doing the right thing, all of us are going to go through suffering, and maybe you're here today and you're suffering. All of us go through that, and how well we deal with it has to do with how much hope we have in suffering. You see, apart from the gospel, what hope does our culture really give towards suffering? Increasingly, people are saying, it's just random. It's random and pointless. There are people who say life is pain. It doesn't give us much hope. I mean, after the Enlightenment, here's what we're left with from Frederick Nietzsche. That which does not kill us makes us stronger. You might have heard it from Kelly Clarkson. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Singers right here on the front row. But before Kelly said it, or did you say Kanye? Oh, before Kelly or Kanye said it, Frederick Nietzsche said it. Here's the thing. There's, there's a measure of, of good news in that, but it's not really hope. It's not really hope because uh, I don't know if you know this, but you can get stronger on the outside, but colder on the inside. You can withstand a lot of pain, but then forget what it means to love. You can just be numb and shut off. You can get stronger, but become more bitter and more toxic. But Paul points to the Christian attitude towards suffering when he says, don't be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are your glory. And here's what I'm getting at. Suffering can actually be used to accomplish God's purposes. That's the hope we have. God is so great that he can take whatever you're going through today, whatever you've been through in the past, and he can redeem it for good. He can use it for his good purposes and he can use it for your good. He can use it for your good and for his glory and he can use it in your life and in other people's lives. It's not what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's even if it kills you, you still get stronger in Christ. Whatever comes against you, you are not able to be defeated because God has a hold of you and he is forming you into the image of Christ. 
anything that comes against you, it's just a fire that's used to purify gold. And you're going to come out on the other side as pure gold. And your faith is going to be as pure as gold. I love the way uh, Pastor Rick Warren says it. God never wastes a hurt. God never wastes a hurt. I don't know what you're going through today, and I don't know what suffering you're still recovering from, but I can tell you that because of the gospel, and if your hope is in Jesus, God will redeem it for good. Your trials are not in vain. I don't know what you're going through, but I know your circumstance doesn't have the right to tell you the end of your story. God (laughs) never wastes a hurt. Oh, (laughs) I missed it. I missed it. So no one has suffering figured out. I'm not going to stand here and claim that I know why you're suffering or why God allowed it or why it's happened. But I do stand here and claim that Christians have hope. To the world, suffering is pointless and random. But to the Christian, even the suffering we face, God can use it for good. And Christians have this transcendent view of suffering. And we see that in this passage, actually, in the first verse. We kind of skipped over it. But Paul says it in his introduction of himself when he says in verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. You see what he said there? Prisoner of who? Christ Jesus. Was it Christ Jesus that had his hand chained to a Roman guard? What? No, he could have said, I'm the prisoner of Nero, the emperor. I'm the prisoner in Rome. I'm the prisoner of the powerful oppressors. I'm a prisoner of the elite. I'm the prisoner of the Judaizers who hate my message of the gospel. But no, he says, I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ. Because there's a transcendent view of suffering that we have because God is sovereign. And he's over all. There's nothing that we can endure that is outside the realm of his sight that he sees and knows about and is in loving control. And he has the ability to redeem for your good and for his glory and his good purposes. That's, that's how powerfully God can speak. When we see that even the things we suffer, it doesn't mean that God's out of control. God is in control, and I'm not the prisoner of of this trial. I'm not the prisoner of this thing that I'm going through. I'm the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and he's going to use this. Amen? This is how powerful it is. God can use your life in that moment, and here's how I know, because Paul was here 2,000 years ago. His hand was chained, but his heart was free. And we're reading about it today. And we're being encouraged by the joy that he had, encouraging people when he was in prison. Can I gently challenge you to see God in control no matter what you're facing? No matter what you've been through, not to assign the blame to God, but to assign your trust that God's going to redeem it, that God's going to bring the healing that you need. Can I challenge you to see yourself as the prisoner of Jesus, not as of your circumstance? The gospel changes the way you see even your suffering. Here's 
Here's, here's the reason as I'm closing. I've failed in every single one of these areas. So I don't stand up here as one who's self-righteous or one who has it all together or, or one who... I stand as, as one who has understood God's grace a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more for me, and it's changing me. It's changing when I suffer. It's changing how I look at his people, the church. It's changing how I see myself. Here's the good news. If I, if I had to sum it up here at the end, for every time you've been prideful, Jesus laid aside his glory to become a servant. In humility. For every time you felt aimless or purposeless, Jesus set his face like flint towards the cross because he knew that was what it was going to take to save you and me, and he went to the cross with joy. For every time you've distanced yourself from the church or you've dogged the church, Jesus loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5. Every time that you've doubted God in your suffering, he groaned on the cross in your place. And when you believe this gospel, this mystery, this good news, you can sing with Isaac Watts, that hymn that I said earlier, that stanza. Was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for the power of your word that brings truth and clarity, that critiques our lives and holds up a mirror in our face. Now we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you illuminate the scriptures in our lives. And God, right now, we just pray. We pray that you would do the work of applying this scripture to our hearts. I pray that if people are here and are convicted at one point or, or any point of this message, any point of this scripture, Lord, that they would feel that conviction and bring it to you and feel the grace that you have extended to them, Lord. You've given us grace to repent, to turn from our sins, to turn from living for ourselves, to turn from our natural default and live a life that's empowered by your Holy Spirit, God. I I don't know what the different prayers may need to be here today. Lord, maybe it's Holy Spirit, give me humility. Holy Spirit, give me confidence. Holy Spirit, show me your wisdom in the church. Holy Spirit, let me live in the present for this future hope. Help me forgive those who've hurt me. Let me see your hand and your heart, even in my suffering. God, whatever it is, I just pray that, that you would minister, God. It's nothing I can say or do. Lord, it's, it's, when, uh, it's when a heart responds to your truth, to your love, to your presence. God, we thank you for your presence that's here. God, I ask that... Um, there's, some, there's, there's someone here that, that may feel like it's just, they're just shackled up. It's a situation that they're going through or a past trial or hurt. But God, we know that you are powerful, Lord, that those chains can be broken. Lord, that nothing can hold you back when you work in our hearts, God. So we cry out to you. We seek you. We ask that you would minister and move. We love you and we thank you. We pray this in the lovely name of Jesus. Amen.
Amen.